Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by my friend, co-host, and THR's chief TV critic, Dan Feinberg. Dan, how you doing? The world is falling apart, but one foot in front of the other. Leslie, how about you? <laughs> yeah, it's... Um not a good week. <laughs> I don't know how to say anything else, but uh, there, you know, there are some highlights, I guess, that we're trying to find uh, the positive in, in things. You know, Dodgers won won the division for the <laughs> two listeners who don't hate baseball. Um, I'm healthy. We got rid of the ants that invaded my house, so yeah, it's been it's been an eventful week, and I, I won't even get into you know the rest of the. Shitstorm that is the re- the real world. So, <laughs> but we can get into the shitstorm that is the fake world of TV news, right? I mean, we didn't even make fun of Quibi, Dan, for sale five months after launching and spending over a billion dollars. <sighs> I don't know what to say, Quibi. Maybe if you'd pronounced your name correctly, none of this would have happened. Well, it'll be a quick buy, maybe. I don't know. That was a bad pun, Dan. It's okay. It's okay. It's all their fault. Yes. Well, leading off in this week's headlines. We'll start with renewals. Fox has picked up Family Guy and Bob's Burgers for another two seasons. Stars has renewed Power Book 2 Ghost for a second season. Some good news there all around. And and you should definitely go back and check out um, our episode from August, episode 84, with a great interview with Power Boss Courtney Kemp. So for, for more on the future of that franchise. HBO Max has landed the TV adaptation of Rashomon with writers Billy Ray and Virgil Williams set to pen the script. And as expected, HBO Max has also landed the new take on Pretty Little Liars from the creator of Riverdale. And on the flip side of that coin and cancellation news, Netflix has axed the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance after one season. And the CW has revealed that the upcoming sixth season of Supergirl will be its last. People really should watch the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance. It was rather terrific. But, oh well, if it was too expensive, it was too expensive. Who am I to say? On the casting front, Demi Moore will star in the Amazon drama based on the Dirty Diana podcast. At Netflix, Sienna Miller, Michelle Dockery, and Rupert Friend will topline David E. Kelly's anthology Anatomy of a Scandal. Patricia Arquette is reteaming with Ben Stiller and will star on an Apple comedy called High Desert. And Tatiana Maslany has landed the lead role in Marvel's Disney Plus's She-Hulk series that news broke basically as we were finishing wrapping last week's podcast. But if you haven't heard it before, it's new to you. Well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five. Number one. Leading off, stick a fork in it, Dan. The Emmys are done. When we look at the numbers, HBO topped Netflix 30 to 21, despite the latter's record 160 nominations. If you ask me, that to me is an upset and a shocker, even though HBO has led the winners or at least tied that one year with Netflix for 20 years in a row. I think it is reflective of I don't know. It's reflective of what John Landgraf likes to point out repeatedly about uh, how about how FX and HBO and certain services are more curated and uh, Netflix is more volume. And so if you look at volume, volume will get you lots and lots of nominations, but more curation will maybe get you more awards. And I think if you look at the Netflix shows that didn't win, I don't think any of them were surprises or upsets. I don't think that there was any question that Succession and Watchmen were going to probably dominate uh, Sunday's show. And so that was going to put 
HBO ahead. I, there were there were no H, there were no Netflix shows that really got upset, and therefore they didn't really leave any awards on the table. If they want to leave awards on the table, they need to be winner worthy, not just nomination worthy. I guess. Yeah, Watchmen, as expected, led all winners, and Succession won best drama, and a series from a network that no longer has originals swept the comedy categories. Dan, good on pop. Uh, you know, you you may not be in the TV business anymore, but or the original scripted TV business anymore, but uh, at least you have all of those Shit's Creek wins. I mean, and for heaven's sakes, so many Shit's Creek wins. <laughs> yeah, it finished second in the total uh, wins by program. I think the number was seven, Dan. But yeah, it's it, it's not. I mean, to me, it, it's surprising that they swept. I mean, I think a lot of people were expecting them, you know, the Schitt's Creek to have a good showing in its final season and final year of Emmy eligibility. But I don't think anyone could have expected that it would sweep these categories. And as you said, it was like more over an hour into the Emmys before a show that wasn't Schitt's Creek won something. Yeah, 72 minutes. Uh, and, and I think I, I said this in my review. I think if you look at the way that the prognosticators figured that the Emmys were going to go on Sunday, I don't think anyone really thought that Schitt's Creek was going to sweep. I think most people probably thought it was going to win for comedy series. I think most people probably thought that uh, Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara had very, very good chances of winning, etc., but I think that a lot of those other categories, the writing and directing categories, the supporting acting categories, I think if you'd asked people to guess, people would have said that some of those would go to other things. And if, if you know, three or four of those had gone to other things, it wouldn't have felt like it was 72 consecutive minutes of going back to the same tent in Toronto, which is definitely how it felt. <laughs> Yeah. And look, you know, we can talk about Netflix and having, you know, 121 of 160. But to me, you know, all these Shits Creek wins are are they're still a win for Netflix because, the you know, the streamer helped really put Shits Creek on the map. Because when you have a show like that on a basic cable network, let alone a niche basic cable network like Pop, it has problems cutting through the clutter. And, and once it hit Netflix, you know, a lot of people still think it's a Netflix original. You got the final season coming up in October. Comedy Central just announced they're going to air it on, on Friday, starting early October. It's on CWC. Like it's in national syndication now. Yeah, but a lot of this stuff would not have happened had Netflix not acquired the show. And so Netflix can take that to the bank, even if they lost uh, overall to HBO. Even if they <laughs> lost, hey, you know, uh, Ozark, Julia Garner won. So there's that. Uh, but yeah, no, if you <laughs> if Netflix takes some solace in those seven wins for Schitt's Creek that started the night, then definitely that's a thing Netflix can feel positive about. They don't get to put the trophies out, probably. But, you know, you, you, you well, make choices. Well, going to the Netflix lobby anytime soon? It's a it's a very nice lobby for people who haven't been there. It's uh, got many, many Emmys. And yeah, but no. So I, I think that there was I think if you go back to last week's thing, I'm pretty sure when it came to predicting, I said that it was going to be a big show for Succession and Watchmen and Schitt's Creek. And I think that was sort of uh, a fait accompli. But we had uh, Mikey O'Connell on last week who was talking about all of the things that the producers anticipated could go wrong, would go wrong, et cetera. And we talked about all the things that that seemed most plausible. And 
ultimately almost none of that went wrong. And and to me, that's rather impressive. The you you could go through so many different things that could have gone pear shaped in that telecast. And it was a really smooth telecast. It, it, there were very few audio problems, very few video problems. Jennifer Aniston uh, couldn't put out the fire in the garbage can on the first shot with the fire extinguisher. But it was probably funnier that she did it in three different shots. So, heck, let's just say that's what she meant to do. I So there was I thought it was a I thought it was a impressively produced telecast. And I don't always feel that way when it comes to award shows or Emmys, certainly. Yeah, it was a big feat that they were able to pull off. And I thought thought it came out really, really well, much better than I expected. Not that I expected very much to begin with, but it also featured a mini friends reunion with Jennifer Aniston, Courtney Cox and Lisa Kudrow, which I mean, I live for that show. So that was a lot of fun to see them together. And, you know, to me, one of the other uh, great moments of the night didn't actually happen on the show, but it happened on Twitter with Rami's what happens when you lose an Emmy tweet going viral, which is kind of incredible. It was because it was a great way of showing everybody what was actually happening and the very strangeness of these trophy wranglers in their hazmat suits, basically traveling the world, making sure that they were present if they needed to be which was very convenient for the comedy categories where really the only place they needed to be was Toronto. Uh, but I feel like towards the end of the Shits Creek wins, people stopped accepting things with trophies either. So they might have even run out of trophies because they weren't sure how many they needed. Uh, it it was strange. And Rami's tweet was very, very funny. It was uh, it was a way of illustrating just how alien this telecast was. Yeah, viewers also didn't really seem very interested in the Emmys either. This, the show hit another low. And, you know, it is worth noting, Dan, I mean, a lot of people are talking about how, you know, the bottom falling out of award shows in terms of ratings. But, you know, the Emmys was up against the NFL first week and the NBA playoffs, which had never happened before, I think. Right. I mean, the NFL, yes, but not with the NBA, too. Yeah, no, this this was not a situation that was well set up for the Emmys to do ratings. And so as always in such circumstances, you'll have people gloating about how it was audiences getting turned off by the politics of liberal Hollywood or whatever. And I think if you look at it, yes, they were down from last year. There's no question. But if you consider that last year honored, among other things, Game of Thrones, which was a much more popular show this year's three winners watchmen did well for hbo succession does well for hbo schitt's creek is this tiny little thing that you know in the balance lots of people watch that show but it's hard to give numbers none of them are game of thrones though so they're all smaller than that and that probably has an impact everything in the world being down on television by X percent year to year to year is another factor. Basically, the Emmys were always going to be down this year. There was never an alternative. I, I think people in the industry have curiosity as to how this was going to look. But I don't think that people at their homes who are simply viewers of television were like, "Ooh, I can't wait to see how they're going to do a quarantined Emmys. Uh, so, yeah, I don't I don't put much stock in the ratings being down other than that it was inevitable they were going to be down and they were definitely down. <laughs> Yeah. Well, to hear more of our thoughts on the Emmys, uh, please check out Tuesday's episode of the Stuck at Home podcast over on our friends at Starburns Audio. 
number two. Up second, we've been talking about this for a while, but the fate of DC Universe is official. Leslie, tell us what happened to this ill-fated streaming platform. Well, the platform lives, but it won't have any TV shows on it anymore. It's going back to what it really was intended for, which is a home for digital comic books so and graphic novels, etc. So don't expect to have library content on there for much longer and definitely don't expect to have originals on there either. So this week, the streamer announced that Harley Quinn is coming back for a third season, but it won't join fellow DCU shows Doom Patrol and Titans over on HBO Max, where it will be an original. So what does this mean? It means if you want to watch stuff from DC Universe, you, you subscribe to HBO Max. If you want to read comic books from DC online, you subscribe to DC Universe. And, you know, look, it, it, it didn't make sense to have these two competing platforms, you know, that were each subscription driven when you're competing and you're going to have different DC scripted shows on both. But you know, it, it's not a surprise. You know, Jim Lee previously told um, our colleague Boris Kitt that it, it made more sense to have originals over on HBO Max. You know, but look, DC Universe launched first. That They were trying to build something up. It made sense to populate it and, and drive interest in it with, with some scripted originals. And maybe it did the trick. I don't know. I mean, I have no idea what the subscribers to that platform are. But in in the larger sense, it really beefs up HBO Max. So and it creates a ton of brand confusion, too. Oh, it, it, they, but they sort of set themselves up for this because when you talked to people who were comic book fans, they would rave about the repository of comic material on DC Universe. But that just wasn't the same audience that was looking for television shows, apparently. I, it just it just seems as if that was the case. And so they had. They did things like canceling Swamp Thing after one week. You know, that was their way of saying we don't really have a clue what we're doing. And it doesn't really appear that what we're doing is working. And for all of this time to have waited on Harley Quinn, I mean, that is easily their most acclaimed show. And that's a show that got a tremendous amount of buzz and that really blew up immediately after it popped up on HBO Max. Exactly. <laughs> that's what part of the 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 positive of this is. You're going to see these shows getting a bigger audience because more people are signing up for HBO Max. And, you know, whether it's your, your, the interest in Friends or some of the DC feature film libraries, but you have a bigger platform that is bigger and broader and it goes to more than than just the fanboy crowd. Right. So if you want to watch Friends and, oh, you know, I like comic books, too. Oh, look, there's like 7000 DC shows on here, too. Oh, this is great. Not just library stuff, but you've got new and originals and. You know, to me, it's like it, 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 it's a big win. And, and as for why it took forever for Harley Quinn to get the, the renewal, well, I sources say that they that the renewal hinged on coming up with a new budget. So, you know, look, when a show changes platforms, even, you know, you know as an original, you have to redo all the deals. And the same thing is going to happen for all the library titles that were on DC Universe. Right. They're going to have to redo all the, those all those licensing deals for HBO Max because now it's a bigger platform, et cetera. So they probably want more money and who knows which of those things will actually make the move and which may revert to somewhere else. But you also had an executive shakeup at HBO Max that delayed the deals too. So now that you've got a new budget, you've got a new home, you know, I expect to see more big things for, for Harley Quinn, you know, but when we're talking more about HBO Max, the piece of it that I think is so interesting is 
there's so much confusion about the DC world that they have because you've got this week that you know HBO Max announced that John Cena will reprise his upcoming Suicide Squad role for an eight episode prequel series centered around Peacemaker, right? So that's obviously connected to the features. That show joins a Batman spinoff that's connected on Matt Reeves' upcoming feature film. Then you've got these DC shows like Titans and Doom Patrol, which are connected. Then you've over in another corner, you've got J.J. Abrams making Justice League Dark, which is expected to have its own build out of spinoffs. And by the way, Greg Berlanti, the architect of, of the, the Arrowverse, is prepping Green Lantern and an anthology show called Strange Adventures. Unclear if those are even connected or what they're connected to or if anything. And then you've got DC Superhero High from Elizabeth Banks. You've got an Aquaman animated series geared toward kids. And last but certainly not least, don't forget that HBO Max became the streaming home for the CW's DC fair, starting with Batwoman. So they'll have they have streaming rights of Batwoman. And then this time next year, they'll have Superman and Lois. So there's a lot of DC there. That is a lot of DC. It it to some degree resembles what it looked like Netflix was doing with its Marvel Universe shows that lasted as long as they did, that succeeded on the level they did, but now no longer exist. And now Marvel is getting us ready for whatever strange things they're getting ready to do over on Disney Plus. But, you know, it's all. Yeah, we saw the WandaVision, the WandaVision trailer drop during the Emmys. You know, we know that those Marvel D Disney Plus shows are going to be connected. We know that those are going to be their spinoffs from the feature franchises. So and with, with the same cast, too. So, I mean, it's one universe, right? At least so far we know versus whatever is going on over at, at, at HBO Max. With there's, It's just it's whiplash. I mean, it's a great variety. And it's like I don't think any of our listeners are going to complain that there's too many different DCU shows and who knows what's connected to what. But you've also got different budgets, different production quality, you know, different. They're all some of these are geared toward different audiences. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, are these you know, is the J.J. Abrams Justice League world uh, Justice League Dark going to be a feature film caliber? You know, I heard the Green Lantern show that Berlanti is doing is maybe one of the most expensive things that he's ever done in his career. I don't know. There's a lot of questions, but it's, you know, at, at this point, do you keep calling it HBO Max or do you call it DC Max? Boris, Boris Kid and I were joking about that the other day, so. I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm willing to bet that at least one or two of our listeners would complain about there being too much DC content, but probably not most of them. And also, once it all just becomes a tab on uh, HBO Max, then you can, you know, ignore it or whatever as you see fit. So, yeah, that that is a lot of DC related things. And most of those have not begun production, of course. And who the hell knows? when new things are actually going to fully begin production. Some things are, though. Some things are not. And that's a transition. Number three. Up third this week, as the number of TV series returning to production rises, we're starting to see one of the expected fallouts of filming during a pandemic. Cast departures. This week, Liv Tyler opted out of returning for season two of Fox's 911 Lone Star. Liv Tyler lives in London with her partner and two young children and opted against commuting to L.A., where the 911 spinoff films during a pandemic. And Dan, who can really blame her? I certainly cannot. And I would not be surprised if there are many people either making the same decision or making the alternative equally tough decision. You know, some people need to go back to work. And if she can prioritize her family over a Fox procedural, <laughs> I mean, goodness gracious, certainly one should do that if one can do that. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, and this is one of the things that we heard early on, you know, during the pandemic, because, look, there's no vaccine. There's a lot of uncertainty. And some of these these actors, they don't need money. They, you know, Liv, Liv Tyler's the daughter of, of Aerosmith lead singer Steven Tyler. Like, they def, she definitely doesn't need the money. Probably was doing this because it was fun and she enjoys acting. And we know that she's got a, a lot of impressive credits under her belt. But it's also just, you know, this is something that a lot of people anticipated, you know, especially when, you know, a lot of, I think a lot of, of people really thought it would might, might have been actors of a certain age. So we haven't really seen much of that, but as far as I know, Liv Tyler is the first and, and most high profile actor to opt out because of concerns related to the pandemic. So it'll, it's definitely something to, you know, to keep an eye on. You know, we also heard other stars leaving, you know, this week, Alan Arkin departed the Kaminsky method ahead of its third and final season. And Earlier this month, uh, Anna Ferris departed another Chuck Lorre show, uh, Mom, over on CBS. Neither, sources say, were because of concerns related to COVID. But yeah, this is definitely something that I think a lot of showrunners and studios, you know, are, are waiting to see what happens. And certainly it wouldn't have been shocking if Alan Arkin had decided he wanted to leave the Kometsky Method because of the conditions under which people are working now and having worries about that. And you know, I talked with Chuck Lorre about this uh, back at Emmy nominations, just the particular responsibility on a show like that when you have your two lead actors in Alan Arkin and Michael Douglas, who are both actors of a certain age, who are both actors who have had their particular fights with the diseases that would leave one with a compromised immune system, hypothetically to some degree. Uh, you know, Chuck Lorre is a, a showrunner of a certain age. Um, so... Yeah, it is not at all surprising that that would be a particularly difficult show to get going, though, as you note, they are saying that this was in the motions before COVID-19 even happened. So that's fine. And it'll be interesting to see how that show plays out, because the dynamic between Alan Arkin and Michael Douglas is so very much the heart and soul of the show. But Paul Reiser was a, a very good addition to the show last year. And if you have more Paul Reiser, that probably means more of Sarah Baker. And Sarah Baker is always one of my favorite uh, supporting actors. So there are things that they should be able to do. And with 911 Lone Star, you know, those shows like that are designed to have people leave if they want to leave. You know, you had Connie Britton leave after the first season of The Mothership, but basically being replaced by Jennifer Love Hewitt, if memory serves. Uh, but you, you, can do, you, you can do things like that on a show like this easily. So yeah. And, and former TV's top five guests and 911 Lone Star showrunner Tim Minear said in a statement that they're not recasting Liv Tyler's role and the door remains open for her to return in some capacity should she want to. And, you know, look, the show previously cast Gina Torres, which is in a nice Firefly reunion with Tim Minear as a new series regular. She's expected to absorb some of the, the brunt of Tyler's absence in the show. Yeah. And so what else have we learned this week as people really and truly actually are getting back into production? Knock on wood, cross fingers, throw salt over your shoulders, whatever you need to do. Yes, all of those things. The Guild and the studios have reached a deal to return to production with a new set of safety protocols to film during the pandemic. Of course, some shows have already begun. And, you know, our colleague Bryn Sandberg did an excellent report this week in the magazine. And it's now online about what the return to production looks like. And you're starting to see 
crew members actually fired for not following proper protocol. I heard that a crew member on the Goldbergs, for example, was fired because of an unwillingness to wear a mask and then that received one warning on that and then was warned a second time when they were wearing the mask below their nose, which, come on, like, come on. And then he was sent home and or he or she was let go from the show. So I think having this large set of safety protocols will help open the door for a return to production for a number of shows that had kind of been holding out. But yeah, there's it's a scary thing to do. And if you want a good firsthand account, go check out Bryn's story. And and obviously, this is one of those things in the same way as the NBA bubble, in the same way as what the NFL has done much better than what Major League Baseball did. The protocols have to be kept and, and there can't be room for tolerance. Oh, I'm wearing my mask below my nose. Well, that's just stupid to begin with. If you're uh, going to wear a mask, wear it the right way or just stay home. But but also, you know, this is this is work. This is this is not play. This is not a luxury situation. If you want to be part of an extraordinarily delicate ecosystem that could fall apart at any given moment by having one person test positive, you can't be the person who screws that up there. And you can't give any wiggle room at all to someone being the person who screws that up. Everyone has to play by the rules or else this becomes a disaster. And Let's all once again, knock on wood, cross fingers, throw salt over your shoulders that this doesn't become a disaster, both because I feel like this town needs work to begin again. I feel like probably some audiences are really, really getting hungry for <laughs> for original programming. There are many, many reasons why things need to return to semi-normal. And again, you don't want to be the person who screws it up for everybody. Yeah. And it's not even just, you know, getting new episodes of Grey's Anatomy and Brooklyn Nine-Nine out the door. It's these are people's this is people's health, right? It's their livelihoods, too. You know, I think follow the protocols, do what you need to do to be safe. And hopefully we'll get through this. I think that's, you know, generally what what these studios are looking for. And, you know, look, these things, you know, as we've mentioned on the show before, these productions are, are getting more expensive to mount. And when you take the risks associated with it into consideration, just expect the total number of, of, of peak TV shows. I think you're going to start to see a decline in overall volume across the board because we've seen, you know, a handful of shows already get get cut because of uh, myriad issues related to the pandemic. But yeah, just, you know, I'm going to curse here, but don't fuck this up, you know, like stay healthy, stay employed. Everybody wins. So and our guest this week in our showrunner spotlight is one person who knows firsthand how difficult it is to uh, to resume production after the pandemic. That's right. Up next is our showrunner spotlight segment. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Number four. 
A quick disclaimer. The first half of this interview was recorded at the Television Critics Association press tour back in January. Having listened to the interview after the ensuing seven months, we realized it was necessary to get Noah back to talk about the changes to the world. So the first half of the interview is pre-COVID-19 and everything else, and the second half was recorded last week. Our guest this week created the dramas The Unusuals and My Generation before he took on the seemingly impossible task of turning the Coen brothers Fargo into an anthology TV series. The first three seasons of Fargo were nominated for an astonishing 113 Emmys, winning 32, including Outstanding Miniseries, for its first installment. The author of five novels, Noah Hawley, has gone on to create and steer Legion for FX, write and direct the feature Lucy in the Sky, and he was recently entrusted with an upcoming installment of Star Trek. Thank you for joining us, Noah. Come on, where else am I going to go? <laughs> <laughs> it's a big hotel, lots of places. True. Now, when we last talked, it was the end of Fargo season three, and you had to face all of the... Are you going to have a season four? Is it going to come back, et cetera? And your answer was always the same. No current plans, but if an idea hits me, I'll do it. And that was back in 2017, which was a long yeah. time ago. And you're a busy person, but when did the actual idea hit you? Uh, yeah, sometime early last year, I feel like. Um, I started to think about it. And then when I was making Lucy in the Sky, I started talking to FX about it. And actually, you know, Chris Rock came by the set and I pitched him what I wanted to do. And I, and then I didn't have a script for four or five more months after that. But I just had an instinct that I wanted to do this with him. Um, and so we, you know, we made a deal with him before we even had a, a script in place. But yeah, so it's been however long that is ago, you know, that was the process. So what was the kernel? What was the, the thing you were able to actually pitch to Chris Rock without having a script? Yeah, well, I like the... The idea, it was a period, it was peace, 1950s, um, and the idea that you had these two criminal organizations, families, for lack of a better word, and that the head of each group traded their youngest son to the other as a kind of insurance policy. And, you know, I, I started thinking about that collision between, you know, the Southern Europeans who had come over in the, in the first half of the 20th century you know, in the collision with African-Americans who at the same time were moving up from the South and that the mainstream economy isn't available to either of those groups. And so they have to create an alternate economy, which is crime. And so what was interesting to think about assimilation and this idea that not only are we talking about immigration and assimilation, but it's like literally you've been traded to another family. How do you learn how to fit into that family or become that? And what do you sacrifice of your own identity in order to become that. Um, one of my questions for just from a, you know, a big picture um, position is, you know, in this PTV era, it's so hard for for these high quality shows such as yours and Donk Lovers Atlanta, for example, to come out on a yearly schedule. I mean, there was, I think, what, a year and a half, two year gap yeah. for, with Game of Thrones. Um, it happens all the time. Better Call Saul. It's across the landscape streaming, too. But I wonder, you know, obviously, uh, you know, Landgraf would have loved to have had Fargo for this year's Emmys consideration. Yeah. And but I wonder, does the the interest from the network and those pressures and obviously the fan interest in, in your show, how does that influence the creative? And do you feel the pressure from, you know, to get this on uh, to get a show on a yearly schedule? Well, it's interesting with Fargo. I, I, I don't think that I really have felt it that much. You know, every the gap each season is longer and longer. 
which I'm not sure MGM is excited about, you know, because it doesn't really satisfy the old school TV model. But FX never really pressured me. And in fact, you know, we made that first season and we won literally everything that you could win, you know, and I had always pitched it as an anthology, but I, they would, they would have, they wouldn't have been wrong to say, couldn't we do two seasons with this cast? But they never said that, you know, they've never sort of pressured me. And I think that they were, when I came in to pitch a second year, they, it's not that they were skeptical, but I think they were worried. They thought this first one was so great and maybe we should leave it at that. Yeah, you know? a very high bar. Yeah. I mean, it's not normal for a, for a fortune 500 company to do a mic drop after a success. Right. So, so, you know, I don't think that they were saying, no, 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 let's leave it at that. But I think they understood that if you can't follow it up, then, then you, you can often cheapen the brand that you you've created. Well, there's a there's a specific reason that the season is set in 1950, and that may be a little spoilery, but talk a bit about kind of the general 50s setting and how it compared in terms of logistical difficulties to 1979, where you set uh, season two. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, you know, I was alive in 1979, so it didn't necessarily feel like a period piece to me as much as this does. You know, once you get into 1950, it's real, everything's really different, you know, the cars and and you know, radios or t- TV or all, all that sort of stuff. You know, the fashion is great, but you don't want to make guys and dolls, you know, so you have to try to figure out, like, how do we make this believable and unique and design each character? Because there's like 25 characters in this in this season. But I'd never really been attracted to period filmmaking before, mostly because I feel like a modern storyteller. And, and so one of the things that always bothers me about watching real period stuff is that there seems to be this impulse that in order to make a, a movie about a period, you have to make a movie that feels like a period movie, you know, whereas I think what what of our modern storytelling tools can we bring to this so that so that even though it takes place in a time period, it feels like a modern show. So all those challenges are really exciting to me. Um, and then and then, of course, you are you are dealing with the social uh, and political realities of, of a different time. And especially if you're talking about 1950, you know, when there's still signs up that say no coloreds, no Italians, you know, you have to, that becomes part of the story, you know, and, and that becomes interesting if you're making a true story or you're calling it a true story, at least to deal with the truthiness of it and to feel like, well, you know, not, nothing, ever gets in the way of your crime story plot, except the real world can get in your way when, you know, you can have a a character and I'm not saying we do this, but you could, you know, you can have a character like driving on his way to an important, you know, plot point in your show and get pulled over and you never see him again because he goes to jail. And, you know, so we played around with a lot of those, those ideas of like, how does, how does the realities of America in 1950 collide with our crime story in a way that takes it in unexpected directions. One of the things that, um, you know, every season has is some kind of influence from the Coen brothers. What would you say that is for this season? You know, I always go back to the, 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 the canon to kind of look at what, is there an example of the Coens doing something that I'm looking at? And in, in this case, because... You have the story about these these two crime families who trade children, but that's not the first time that happened because the Italians, the Irish were there before the Italians, you know, and so 
there's a lot of history that that I need to to deliver to you before my story starts. And so I ended up looking at Raising Arizona, which is one of the great examples of an opening segment in which you get all this information with a lot of personality and style that really defines the, the comedy and tone of voice of the entire movie. And I thought, oh, okay, so that's interesting to try to turn backstory into entertainment in a way. And and since I'd say my my lead character is the 16-year-old girl in Kansas City, you know, if we can we can we can say my history report and she can, you know, very similarly walk you through both who she is and what her family dynamic is and the history of true crime in, in Kansas City. And then, of course, obviously, Miller's Crossing feels fairly clearly to be somewhat an influence because of the genre. But is that something then that you have to avoid because it might be too obviously an influence? Yeah, I mean, it's some, some of it that, that just has to do with the fact that this season starts in the fall versus <laughs> the winter, you know. And so all those fallen leaves and, and period costumes, you, you feel that Miller's Crossing you know, Miller's Crossing, I looked to a lot in season two, but this year I didn't look to it as much. It's it's just sort of a happy accident that that it's evocative of that because of the period and the and the time. I mean, once year. once you've got the sort of the push across the field with the leaves dancing across the yeah. field, I'm immediately going, okay, I, I see that. <laughs> yeah, and you know, somebody's got to say what's the rumpus at some point, <laughs> but but um, yeah. Now, as you say, you're dealing with a big topic here. I mean the assimilation of race and ethnicity and nationality in America in the 1950s. That is a big topic. Did you ever at any point feel like, okay, I might have bit off something that's larger than I can tackle in one anthology season of a TV show? Yeah, I mean, I think to the degree that thematically the themes are complementary, you know, it's so it's not a kitchen sink approach. You know, I think I, I never felt like you know, I was throwing things at the wall to see what stuck. It, it, a lot of ideas sort of led naturally one to the other, and you know, um, there is a collision of characters and a collision of, of themes, but they all felt felt of a point. But I mean, the whole season feels like more than I can chew on some level because <laughs> it's, you know, it's it's enormous scale wise and character wise, et cetera. But it also felt like if we're going to do a fourth one of these, you know, the size of it. Is has to be what's compelling about it. You know, you're, you're saying, no, come back for another one, especially since, you know, season three was was a much smaller, more intimate story with like six characters in it. You know, th- this idea of, of we've reinvented this and, and it really is a period crime epic. And, and um, you know, that, that felt really interesting. Well, the first season, you kind of did the writing all yourself to some degree, and then the second and third seasons, you you brought in more people. So talk a bit about about some of the people you brought in this time. I saw Stephanie Robinson's name in the credits, etc. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it. I have over the years sort of gone back and forth from my own process on the on the value of a writer's room, uh, or at least how I use a writer's room. You know, maybe because I I'm a novelist, but and I'm used to doing things myself. It's always been hard for me to to say have the room break story and then I come in and, and they pitch me, well, this is going to happen and then that's going to happen. And at a certain point, if it's not, if I can't filter it through my own story engine, I don't necessarily understand it or, or how, to, how, to, how to do it. And sometimes, you know, even in, in taking 
you know, writers through the process of writing scripts and, and filming them, there'll be moments in the editing room where I go, I don't really understand this because I didn't write it myself. But at the same time, you know, there is a real value to thinking out loud and to having other voices and opinions as a way to refine your ideas. And then, of course, with this season, you know, there's a lot of American experiences reflected in the show that are not my experience. And and that makes it critical to have voices in the mix, you know. Um, I had a great writing team, Scott Wilson and Enzo Maletti and, and, and Stephanie Robinson, Lee Edward Colson, who's a playwright, did some great work for me, and Francesca Sloan. And, you know, so it was very helpful and, and necessary to have those voices and, and, and points of view. You know, my grandmother came to America when she was five years old, running from the Cossacks. And, you know, her bed was two hardback kitchen chairs pulled together. And that American immigration experience is very close to me. And, and my desire to explore it is, is, is genuinely personal for me. Um, but I also feel like at this moment in time, if we're not asking questions about what it means to be an American and what are our values and, and ethics, then we're not really doing our job as storytellers. You know, I think it's important to ask these questions. And it's it's great to see, you know, shows like Watchmen that are engaging, you know, with the culture in real time. And, you know, not everyone is going to articulate everything perfectly and sometimes the conversations can be difficult, but we're, we're lucky to live in a country where we get to have them. Um, you know, obviously you have this new season about to premiere, but do you have thoughts about another one beyond this? How much longer, how many more cycles do you see this going? Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, again, I'm in a similar situation where I kind of feel like, well, yeah, this has to be it. I mean, how much, you know, but I don't know. Sometimes you take a nap and you wake up and you go, okay, so it's two brothers and one of them got a stamp collection from his dad and the other got a Corvette. And like, that's interesting. That feels like Fargo. So, <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, what's nice is that there isn't pressure on me and I feel like I can call FX at any point, you know, it could be, we could all be old men and, and I think I could do one more, but this will be 40 hours of, of, of Fargo, which is 38 hours more Fargo than the Coens ever made. <laughs> um, and so, you know, you really... There's so much volume out there, you know, hundreds and hundreds of shows that... 532 to be exact. <laughs> I know. So so there's... Unless you just want to get paid, you know, really, I try not to make something unless I think it, it can be the best. You know, I couldn't be making this season of Fargo if I didn't feel like it's the best season we've ever made. So if I have that feeling again, I, I would come back, yeah. Well, what have you learned about yourself, your writing process, your time management skills in the past couple of years, sort of balancing multiple TV shows, multiple development projects, a movie. I'm sure you're writing a book as well, et cetera. I mean, I'd like to say I've learned to stop saying yes to things, but I clearly I have not done that. But I always have this sort of optimistic sense of like, well, I'll do this and then I'll do that. But invariably, you end up having to do things at the same time. You know, I've learned on some level to kind of limit my directing because it's it's so time consuming and labor intensive, and and y you know, I I get I don't get enough time with my family as is, and so I really don't want to volunteer. You know, I thought about directing 
early in the season and then later in the season. And I just thought, no, I can't do that to them. Like, because I still have writing to do and editing to do, you know, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. Um, and so you learn to be more deliberate in your choices. I feel like in terms of what, what I take on, I am surrounded now by people I've, I've worked with, you know, for years on, on these things. We have a shorthand. I, I trust them. And, and, you know, that really helps the process. So we really appreciate you getting back on the line with us because we talked back in January and that was at TCA Press Tour. And that seems like around 10 or 15 years ago. So we figured it was important to. I think it was. I think that was 1950. to, 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 To touch base on how the world has changed. Well, sort of talking about that. When we spoke in January, the season was still in the middle of production. And then, of course, in March, you, like everybody else, shut down. Was anyone on the team prescient or paranoid enough to realize in February or early March that you guys were racing against a potential clock? Yes. I mean, we, we felt it. Um, you know, when I flew up to do a week of reshoots, I guess it was the first Sunday in March or second Sunday in March. I mean, I was very aware that there was now risk involved in, in getting on that airplane and going up there. And, and, um, you know, we, we learned on Monday as, as we were filming that, that someone on a, on another crew in Chicago had tested positive. And so the first thing we do was just send home anyone who had overlapped on that crew. Um, and then we tried to get answers. Who was it on that crew? What was the other exposure? There was someone else who was symptomatic. Were they going to be positive? You know, and of course the crew now gets really freaked out because in March we don't know anything. Um, we don't even know that bleach cures it in March. So, um, yeah. And then, you know, that was the week it was like Tom Hanks got it. The NBA shut down. Like, so going into yeah. Tuesday and Wednesday and, you know, I'm just trying to do, I'm just trying to to be a leader in the way that I wish we had leadership, which is, you know, is to be as transparent as I can be, to learn everything I can be, to tell people what I don't know. And, you know, of course, the studio and the network, I mean, we're all desperate to finish, but we have three more weeks. And I remember that Monday night sending an email to, to, to MGM and FX and saying, if we don't think we can get these three weeks, we should just shut, shut down now the difference between getting two weeks and getting three weeks is, is negligible and, and, you know, better to safe than sorry, but it took a couple more days, you know, I mean, I think, I think it's all esoteric. And then, you know, there comes a moment on Thursday morning where, where we're, they're still pressing me because, you know, I have Italian actors who have to go back to Italy, which is locked down. And when can we get people back? When could we finish this? And so if we moved up, all the Italian actors' scenes and shot over the weekend, could we finish and everything? But by five o'clock on Thursday, we were done. Everyone was done. It was very clear. Yeah, everything. Ha- it feels like the big shutdown happened very, very quickly. Because I, I think I remember writing on like a Thursday afternoon, early evening, that Grey's Anatomy was shutting down. And then the next day, it everything felt like dominoes. Very rapid. I've never, I've, obviously, this is unprecedented, but like, 
for you to be on set, especially with Italian actors and people who, you know, responsible for people to, to get back home at a, at a time that was, I, I keep saying it, but it is unprecedented. But like the pressure that you felt it while also trying to land this ship, the land to complete the full season. I mean, was there ever a point where you were just like this? We're never going to we're not going to make the premiere date. We're like, where did that thinking fall in terms of your priorities of trying to finish versus trying to care for the people that you were overseeing? I mean, it, it, it was all clear in, in the moment. That was part of the discussion. I mean, shutting down would mean not hitting the air date, I think, because there was talk of like, we'll shut down for a couple of weeks and see what happens. But I, I knew that if we sent the Italians home, they were, they weren't going to come back in a couple of weeks. Um, you know, I went back and forth with FX about breaking the season up and showing half now and half later. And, and they didn't want to do that. And, and I understand it's expensive to launch a, a, a season and, and, you know, you don't want to do it twice. Um, and I guess we, we had hoped that, that we could get back at least by the summer, um, and, and beyond in the fall. But, um, you know, that it's, it's the hard part of it. But at the end of the day, what I found there on the ground in Chicago was it was my show and I was going to make the decision because I was responsible for these people's safety. And so when I called on Thursday to say, no, I can't shoot through the weekend with these actors, it's just not a tenable, safe plan. Um, you know, that was my decision. And, and you can sue me if you want to. Of course, when I called them before I could even get the words out, they said, we know we're done. You know, so, so, you know, you can understand if you're on their side of the fence that there's a lot of zeros that are going to be added to this budget the moment that you have to shut down and that that's a process. Of course, especially in a, in a corporate environment in which decisions are often made in a kind of nebulous way. Do you know what I mean? Where it's like, and it's Disney now and it's not just. You know, it's not it's not just somebody in at the top of FX says okay. It, there's a certain like process they have to go through, but you know, in the end, they did the right thing as they have always done, in, to my knowledge. And this meant that you had four or five months, basically holding on to nine episodes of rough and increasingly finished cuts to tinker with. And obviously TV is such a, a deadline oriented business. Have you ever had that sort of leisure? with a cut before and what impact did that have on on how you were looking at these episodes and what happened to them over the three or four months yeah i mean it, it was it was odd um the post period on, on lucy in the sky was long you know i'd never had that much time with a film before and and i appreciate it on, on some level but i also you know you worry at some point that the that the notes will always expand to fill the time, right? Like if you deliver a director's cut, that's genius. They're never going to say that's genius. They're going to give you three pages of notes until you run out of time. So, um, but you know, what was good for me was to live with this material, to live with, you know, the interconnected stories of 21 main characters. Um, and to, you know, to realize, that the, the middle episodes were all were all too long and that there was an opportunity to create an extra hour um, taking from episode five, six, seven um, that would strengthen the whole season because now you had some four very tight 
episodes where you, before you had three episodes that probably would have lost your interest at certain moments during parts of the story that were critical. And yet, you know, when, you know, we've, we've all watched those, those things where you're so invested in one character storyline. And then when you switch to someone else's storyline, you know, you, you feel like I don't want to be here. I want to be back where I was. So the ability to kind of focus more on certain storylines and then the next episode focus on another storyline. And then the other thing was really, you know, even in the last week before I I had to lock, really lock, lock for the final time, the first two hours, I, I went back and I took about five minutes out of both hours. You know, and I don't, I couldn't have done that if I'd just kept it locked the way it was before, you know, on the regular TV timetable, which I do well with. I mean, I, I, I'm a decisive person and when I it looks done I, I'm ready to move on to the next thing but it was nice in this case to go you know we're launching a very big and complicated story and and you know it needs to have a little more pace to it and and then of course you, you wind up returning can you talk us you know you're the first showrunner that we've had on the show here who's actually gone back into production um, can you talk a little bit about the experience like how different did it feel? How much longer did it take to do things that, that normally would have been maybe taken half the time? Like what, how does it compare, you know, to the before, I guess is what we're calling it. Yeah. I mean, I made a choice not to direct Keith Gordon was originally going to do the last two hours as a block. And in fact, he had shot a few days in March. So, but he did not feel comfortable health wise going back up there. So then I had to think, am I going to go step in and, and direct? But, but the DGA frowns on that when a showrunner steps in to direct. And we had this idea that if we broke the last two hours up, we could film them simultaneously, which would shorten everyone's exposure. Um, so we did. And Dana Gonzalez, who is my DP and had directed a couple episodes that season, he did The Closer and Sylvan White, who had shot for us this year, did episode um, I guess what's now 10. Um, and you know, there was a lot of, as you would imagine, you know, there's a 40 page logistical memo. There's, you know, international health consultants. There's all the stuff that, that you, that you need. You know, we, we had our zones, we had our zone a, um, you know, the minimum number of people to be around the actors who of course can't wear masks. And, you know, everyone with their masks and face shields and, and all that, um, self-driving, et cetera, everything we could do to minimize exposure. And, you know, and then, of course, the fear is that on the weekends, you know, people are going to go out and, you know, you can't you can't on some level police everyone. I know there are some productions where, you know, they take over a whole hotel and everyone's there and that's that's your your life on set and, and not on set. But we didn't do that or couldn't do that. So, you know, you have a certain amount of prayer involved, but at the same time, I thought like two weeks, I feel like we can do two weeks. You know, I feel like people can commit for two weeks to orbiting their lives and not touching down. And the moment you get into three weeks and then four weeks, you know, now someone's like, Oh, my cousin's bar mitzvah or whatever. And you know, you're in trouble. Well, as you, um, you talked about the amount of time that you had to sit with those first eight 
than nine episodes, but you also had the same amount of time to sit with the the final two episodes and scripts are did they end up being basically exactly what you thought they were going to be back in March or did they change? Did you have to change it to, I guess, covidize them to make it easier to shoot? Yeah, they didn't. I mean, the way it ends is the way it ends. So I didn't have some middle of the night revelation that that, you know, that the story should shift dramatically, mostly just because to build something that that intricate, you know, it's everything is built to, to land in, the, in a certain order, in a certain way. What I did have to do was just really make sure that everything that I was asking them to film was vital, you know, and that anything that felt like, well, this would be nice to have. We had to get off the schedule because, you know, we, we just didn't have that much time. You know, I think what, what was, you know, the, the, the good side of the COVID sort of protocols is that you're, you're not trying to do much in a day you know you have one scene that you're doing today maybe one and a half or two two scenes but nothing like the days you would normally have uh on on location and part of that is just it takes time to get going and you're asking people to stick by protocols safety regulations and it takes time to just to get through the logistics around covid preparedness but i think it created for for the actors and 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 the and the artists a real sense of like okay we have this this one thing to do today and um you know i mean we've we've all been on those sets where it's like you have a 10 page day and you know you're over 3 hours and you know none of that was possible so now that you've had this opportunity to kind of get a taste of what filming and production is like during covid do you see that experience as changing how you would approach writing, say, a new season or season five or a new project? Like, the, you know, how are you looking at filming and writing towards those things now, knowing what it's like to actually try and and, and get this done in, in this new landscape? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know um, going forward what the outside window for this is, right? Like, it seems clear that we've gone, you know, what we thought was going to be a an uh, evolution over a few years, you know, from 500 plus shows down to 200 plus shows as people consolidate, um, these companies and, and, and the streaming war is sort of won and lost. You know, I think you had a sort of overnight transition. I don't think we'll ever see 500 shows again. I mean, I think you're going to go from 500 shows last year to 200 shows this year. And I, I don't know if you go back, you know, because, if it is going to at least for one more year, maybe two more years, if if it's if you're going to have to have this logistical, this this heightened logistical process, everything's going to cost so much more than it would have cost, and 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 the risk is going to be so great that that you're going to have to really think twice. Do I really want to make this? Is this really worth the expense and the effort, et cetera? You know, we're talking about millions of dollars and tens of millions of dollars of extra expense just to make a season of television or, or a movie. And, and there's only so much cash that people have. They're not going to make 20 things. They, maybe they'll make 10 things. So, you know, I, I think for me as a storyteller, it's hard to know. Do you make something small? Do you make something big? You know, when when is that moment? If if I can be in production again next summer, is it going to be better? It's that's that's the hard thing to know. Is like, I just want to tell the story I, I want to tell. You know, I've never been a fan of the big ballroom scene. 
but certainly I'm not going to write it now. Well, as you look at these last two episodes, can you tell the difference as you look at them, given the auspices under which they were shot? Will audiences be able to tell? Well, I mean, we, we wrapped so recently that I have not seen the director's cuts yet. I see them on Tuesday, I think. So, but no, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, I don't think so. And I think that was what was really important was, you know, we had to simplify, but we couldn't lose the artistry of it. And on, on some level, I, th- I think you, you may even find these last two episodes are even more beautiful than the ones before because, because everyone was worried that we would end up with something sort of like yada yada or simplistic or whatever. So, so, you know, it feels to me just having watched dailies and, and, um, that, that, um, that is that is not a concern that I have. <laughs> and this was already going to be more of a season about race than the previous seasons. And it's very much a season about the challenges of overcoming America's 400 plus year legacy of systemic racism. Have you been able to kind of step back and get any perspective on how much more timely this season is suddenly now feeling maybe than it would have had it premiered in April? Yeah, I mean... A long overdue conversation is going to happen, and on some level, we've been having this conversation for for four hundred years. It's it's more acute right now, but you know, I would like to think that had any time this this season would have premiered, it would have been timely. But it does feel especially so now, you know. And 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 a lot of the decisions that I made early on, you know, it's nice to to sort of have the validation of having an instinct that, you know, to take my Marge Gunderson and make it a cop again this year and this story was not appropriate, you know, that, that you know, this moral pillar, uh, which in the first three years has always been a cop, that that's just not the experience of a lot of Americans of law enforcement um, and that there was something, but I still needed that. I still needed the moral pillar and I still needed you know, a detective on some level, but the idea that, that it didn't actually have to be someone with a badge was really liberating. And and the idea that it could be this 16 year old girl and in a kind of rear window situation, that was really exciting because of course, why make a fourth year of Fargo unless you think you can throw out all the old paradigms and do something different. So now that you've had some time with this and you've talked about the, the desire to kind of expand the universe of Fargo a little bit with this and, and break form. Where, where are you when it comes to thinking about season five? I mean, I feel like I've said I'm done so many times that, you know, I'm not going to say I'm done now. Like it's, it's clearly disingenuous. Um, I don't have the idea in, in front of me um, right now. I do think this conversation about America that I've been having for four years now, you know, America, we're not running out of things to talk about America. So, um, you know, I'm, I, I have a couple of thoughts um, th- thematically um, that, that I want to look at, but, you know, I'm, I'm nowhere near a kind of writing stage at this point. You know, I don't think it would be as long, but we never know what's coming down the road. 
Yeah, absolutely. I know we asked you this in January, but obviously so much has changed since then. And we do like to end the interviews the same way. But what have you been watching and enjoying lately? Uh, you know, I'm finding things like, did you know there's a Jude Law, like Wicker Man thing on HBO or Max or whatever that is? Like, I, I saw that come up. I was like, where did that come from? What have I been watching? I've been watching The Boys, which I like. It's, you know, it's, it's pushing the right buttons. It feels like it's, it's, it's sort of wrong in the, in the right ways. I appreciate that. You know, I watched some Raised by Wolves. I I watched um, some Lovecraft Country. You know, I can't say that there's something right now that, that I'm riveted by. Um, But it's also, I mean, who, who can be riveted by anything in this moment? It's, you know. Um, I haven't found the, the, my full escape yet, um, but um, you know, there's a show Fargo coming back. I'm excited to watch that. I think that's going to be really good. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Noah, for joining us a second time. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> <Twice>. my pleasure. <laughs> joining us twice, I should say. <laughs> thank you much. Thanks, guys. The fourth season of Fargo premieres on FX on Sunday, September 27th. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Among this week's major new launches are Fargo on FX, The Comey Rule on Showtime, Utopia on Amazon, FX docuseries Wilderness of Error, and Sneakerheads on Netflix. Dan, what you got for us? God, that's a lot of TV. Um, But once again, better too much than too little. Uh, My favorite thing premiering this weekend is Fargo. There's, There's no question about that at all. And that's even though the fourth season of Fargo is it's it's a bit of a of a roller coaster. It's as you just heard Noah Hawley discuss, it's a big season. And the number of regular characters and plot lines exceeds anything that the show has attempted before. And there are definitely periods where you can feel some of that strain. The first, I think, four episodes are all over an hour without commercials. And that's just trying to fit in the storylines with all of these characters stretched across these episodes. And, you know, there there are there are too many characters. And I I feel like probably there's a way this could have been done in 13 episodes as opposed to basically 10 with a bonus episode that no explained just last segment. There are still so many things I love about this show. I I love the cast. It's it's a great performance by Chris Rock in the center, but maybe not always in the center. And just one wonderful supporting actor after another popping up coming through. It still looks spectacular. It has that Fargo music and that Fargo soundtrack selection and that, that Fargo absurdity. Stick with it. You do gain emotional involvement in some of the characters. The first episode, there's really just a lot of figuring out who's who and what anyone's name is and how they're related. The ninth episode, which was the last one sent to critics, was my favorite by a large amount. And to me, it was one of the best episodes that uh, they did. Uh, Speaking of shows that are going to require some stick-to-itiveness, Amazon's Utopia is both very, very difficult to explain. It involves a mysterious comic book where it may be predicting or reflecting a global pandemic that's taking place. Um, Yeah, you you might find that. Some light, 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 
viewing. Yes, exactly. You might feel as if that's a little bit more than you want to deal with right now. And I would understand why the first couple episodes are a little chaotic and like Fargo, too many characters doing too many things without necessarily understanding what they were doing. Uh, This is another fantastic cast, though. Uh, John Cusack is a main character, but there are a lot of main characters here and there, but a lot of just people who people love from TV, whether it's Dan Bird or Desmond Borges or uh, lots of people who you will recognize. You had me at Des from You're the Worst. There you are. He he has a very, very prominent uh, perform- performance and situation. It is very violent. Sometimes it's funny in ways that hit home. Sometimes it's funny in ways that I kind of wonder might have been funnier if it were in a different situation in which they weren't making jokes about a global pandemic. Uh, So these things go. Uh, I've seen seven of the first eight episodes, and I was definitely more invested by the homestretch than I was the early stuff. But there's a lot happening here, and it's very, very interesting. So there's that. There's the Comey rule on on Showtime on Sunday. It's a lot of people play acting as your favorite political figures from 2016. And so once again, like whether or not you want to watch a dark comedy about a global pandemic, do you want to watch a laundry list historical drama about the 2016 election and Hillary's emails and the Russia investigation and all of that? Do you, Leslie? I'm guessing you do not. (laughs) I believe the words I'm looking for are hard and pass. Um, on the other hand, the second of two nights features Brendan Gleeson as Donald Trump, and it's it's fun watching what he's doing. I, I think in my review, I described it as maybe not a very good impression, but a really good performance. There's there's a perspective to it. And if you've been watching, I don't know, Alec Baldwin Saturday Night Live, Donald Trump, where there is no perspective to it at all, it, it's just basically a silly, flimsy impression and nothing behind it. Uh, Brendan Gleeson's doing something here. There's there's acting and it's interesting. So maybe I recommend it for that, but I don't know that it's good enough for me to say, you know, if, if this causes you to cringe and causes your stomach to churn, you should watch it. That's, you know, tough. Um, I really like the FX documentary series Wilderness of Error. It's Directed by Mark Smerling, who was part of the creative team on The Jinx, which is one of my favorite true crime series ever. And it is about the 1970 Jeffrey McDonald murder. He was accused of killing his wife and two young daughters. He, in turn, said it was a group of four hippies on LSD. Um, And there's been a lot of contention over the years as to what the evidence was, who it pointed to. There have been trials and retrials and attempted appeals. Uh, The first half is mostly straightforward, true crime stuff. The second half is a lot of internal debate about the true crime drama, Uh, mostly conversations between Smerling and Errol Morris, who wrote the book that it was based on. And it's a lot of talking about narrativizing uh, real horrible events and how the narrative can somehow become more important than the evidence. I was fascinated by the last couple hours. Um, I thought it was meta and postmodern in really, really smart ways. On the other hand, if you're coming in looking for a Jinx-esque documentary that's just about this horrible crime, I think it falls short because maybe that's just not the way the story works. And so I think it's interesting to see. Um, And 
Finally, uh, Sneakerheads on Netflix. I think Alan Maldonado, who's the star, is a really good actor. I've really liked him on Survivor's Remorse and Blackish and a few other things. So this is a comedy about the Los Angeles sneakerhead scene. And it's interesting in its detail and depiction of that scene. It's not really all that funny. On the other hand, at only six episodes, it goes by very, very fast. It has some very funny cameos. And I think some people will like it. Uh, my feeling was that it's an interesting enough world that the show should have been much better than it is. But, you know, not not a huge thing. And again, at six episodes, life goes on. <laughs> and also gives me a reason to say Alan Maldonado was amazing in You're the Worst for his role as Honey Nuts. <laughs> no, he's he's a really good actor and a, yeah. a talented writer as well. And so I'm I'm happy to see this here. Uh, I I would have liked for it to be better. That's that's all it is. It's it's a little bit too slight and a little bit too disjointed and a little bit too defensive of the sneaker culture as if they're trying to appeal to an audience that's going to be skeptical and the audience that's going to be skeptical isn't going to watch it all. And the audience that would like a show about this doesn't need to be convinced. They don't need the defensiveness. So it it's sort of stuck in the middle of two things. I wish it had simply said, we're a TV show about sneakerheads. Deal with it. If you don't care about this world, there are 450 other shows for you to watch. That's OK. But yeah, I actually just started watching High Score, the Netflix video game docuseries. And I am not a gamer. I haven't really been since Super Mario Brothers. But like, it's fascinating. Truly well done. It's so. it's good. That's that's one where I would like for them to renew it because I feel like there are a lot of stories they didn't get to. In my review, I talked about how it was a lot of superficial fun, but not nearly as deep as it needed to be on some things. But it's it's a quick it's a quick, easy watch and now a compliment to Console Wars, which I believe is now out on CBS. So there's a lot of high quality uh, documentary video game type programming, if that's the kind of thing that amuses you or middle quality. I don't know about high quality, some quality. More than no quality. There we go. <laughs> well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. We'll be back next week when we'll be joined by Utopia showrunner and former EW legend Gillian Flynn. Well, this feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. And as a reminder, if you like us, please continue to spread the word and let THR know. As we've discussed on the show for months, you know, the industry is changing quickly and, well, we don't want to be unrenewed. <laughs> you might have read some things this week. Anyway, until then, be no sure comment, to... No comment, Dan. No comment. <laughs> <laughs> Until then, be sure to subscribe on your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. We're always happy to say hi to you on the Twitter. So come drop by with your questions, comments, and concerns. But if you want to be part of a future mailbag segment, email us at TV's top five at THR.com. That's TV's top five, the number five at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, my friend. <laughs>